Hi, this is Bob Groves. Welcome to the Provost podcast series that we label Faculty and Research. This week, we welcome Janet Mann, Professor of Biology and Psychology at Georgetown. Since the late 80s, Janet's work has focused on social networks, female reproduction, calf development, life history, conservation, tool use, social learning, and culture among bottlenose dolphins in Shark Bay, Australia. Her research expertise is in animal behavior, obviously, behavioral ecology, behavioral science, biology, dolphin behavior, marine biology, marine mammal science, and psychology. The long-term study, which is labeled the Shark Bay Dolphin Research Project, tracks over 1,800 dolphins throughout their lives. It includes an international team on three different continents where scientists focus on different aspects of dolphin biology. In 2015, she initiated the first study of wild bottlenose dolphins in, of all places, the Potomac River right here in Chesapeake Bay. Since 1997, her research has been supported continuously by the National Science Foundation, a real mark of the importance of it. But she's also received funding from a range of foundation and foundations and government agencies. She's published over 120 scientific papers. Her research has received considerable attention worldwide. And I can note she was the very first vice provost for research at Georgetown University during which time I was able to work with her between 2013 and 2017. She's an instructor of diverse courses at Georgetown, including topics such as the brain and evolution of behavior, animal behavior, monkeys, apes, and humans, and human evolution and behavior, and the biology of marine mammals. She is a mentor of many, many students over her career. 120 students have received awards and fellowships in her lab, she is a prolific co-author with her students. Of great interest is she makes sure that every year several students accompany her to Australia to be a real part of field research. And also, she's having them assist in the Potomac Chesapeake Dolphin Project. So I welcome you, Janet Mann, to this little podcast. I'm looking forward to our conversation. And maybe the best way to start is, uh, so how did you get interested in animal behavior. Do you remember the moments where you first started finding that a fascinating field? Well, thank you for this opportunity. I mean, I could go back to when I was five and collected insects and tried to categorize them taxonomically, although I wasn't very good at it and would pull off their legs to make them match, you know, the different categories. But <laughs> I, I don't cheat anymore as far as that's concerned. And then I became very interested in primates, actually, when I was in high school. And that started with, like many young women, who then eventually went into animal behavior. And it was as simple as seeing Jane Goodall on television. And in fact, there's a name for it, the people who are influenced by the trimates, which was Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, and Brute Galdicus, all installed by Louis Leakey, a paleoanthropologist, to study chimpanzees for Jane, mountain gorillas for Diane Fossey, and orangutans for Brute Galdicus. And that, of course, Jane is the most famous, and then Diane Fossey until, uh, also became famous because she was murdered. But that amazed me because I was like, wow, you can just kind of go and live in the forest and study another species. And I thought, 
that seems like a great career. <laughs> for... So how old were you about this time when you discovered those? Oh, I remember that really well. I was 14. We subscribed to National Geographic, so I pulled all of them down and went through all of them for all the primate primatology information. Then I went to our local library and I checked out all the primate books, which were 11 books. I read all of those. I started volunteering at a lab at Hofstra University because uh, I grew up on Long Island. And um, I also got an internship at the American Museum of Natural History in the city. So I was an obsessive child and mm -hmm. I was taking every opportunity I could to sort of do any kind of work around animals, particularly primates. But when I got to college, which was at Brown University, the anthropology department was all cultural, so that wasn't a place for me. Biology was all pre-med, so that didn't feel like a place for me either. And then the psych department was, they had a primate lab upstairs, which wasn't the best primate lab actually, but it was you know, an opportunity where I could learn about primate behavior and work in a laboratory and do cognitive experiments. When you first discovered the primate interest, well, it's kind of hard to imagine, I guess, whether this was conscious or not, but it did, did it make a difference that these were women? Oh, it made a huge difference. I thought, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and you usually saw men, you know, I grew up watching all, you know, all the wildlife documentaries and it was a mutual of Omaha wild kingdom where, you know, Jim would wrestle the buffalo and jump out of a helicopter and carry a gun. And it was very much this different tradition of, it was very much like conquer the beast. And to see women who were not trying to like conquer the beast, but to understand the beast <laughs> was a real revelation for me. You just didn't have those kinds of models. So it was a completely, it was completely different. And that was a big shift for the field as well, actually. I mean, the field had then moved and animal behavior is like 50-50 women, really. And there are a lot of alpha females in animal behavior. <laughs> was it common to have an undergraduate interested in animal behavior? Do you remember classmates who were? Yeah, they used to tease me. So I spent my junior year in Kenya, the Amboseli Baboon Project, which is still running, which was started in 1971. I volunteered to work there. And the sort of the alpha female who let me in, she's, we're, we're still very close. I keep in contact with her. She's retired from Princeton now. She told me, I said, well, why'd you let me become, because I was the first undergraduate, she let go out to Kenya and work in that uh, capacity. And she said, well, you were, you were clearly obsessed. I felt like I had to, I, I had to let you do it, let you try. And that was a real revelation year for me because I discovered that I was completely happy spending 12 hours a day with the baboons. Even, you know, you get up at four, you drive to where they, you left them the night before at their sleeping tree and, you know, spend the day with them six days a week. And it was, and just to kind of walk around with them and have them kind of let you in, let you observe them, not interfere. It's not a relationship. I didn't have a special relationship or bond with the animals, but they let me see what their lives were like. And I felt that was a great privilege. And I still feel that privilege that if another species will kind of tolerate you and let you be kind of let you in to some degree, that's just a great honor, in addition to being incredibly interesting. So yes, when I came back from a year with the baboons, I got teased a lot by my <laughs> friends at college. 
you know, they've called me baboon lady and all kinds of things. But I was also really struck with how much of an observer I be, had become from spending so much time just watching the baboons. And I would watch people a lot. And then I thought, well, maybe I could, you know, humans are primates. Maybe I should just kind of balance between sort of human, non-human primates. And that was my intention, actually. Um, I went to get my PhD at University of Michigan after I worked for a couple of years just to make sure that I really missed being in school and doing academic work. I went to work with a primatologist, but also to do human research there. So that's why I went sort of in psychology and sort of stayed. But with feet, I always had my Mm -hmm. other feet planted in in Mm -hmm. biology and anthropology primarily. So Janet, I know you kept these interests through the undergraduate and intensified them. And then your graduate work was at the University of Michigan. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so I went to University of Michigan because, of course, it's an outstanding institution. But there was a primatologist there, a field primatologist, Barbara Smuts, who was also in a psychology department. Uh, She had a joint appointment in anthropology and in biology. So Michigan was highly interdisciplinary. And they were also starting this program called sort of a human evolution and behavior. And it had basically all the big names in diverse areas that were interested in, in evolutionary approaches to human behavior and animal behavior. So I went there with the intent of continuing both sort of my, well, human research and non-human primate research. I want to probe that a bit because that it's an unusual graduate experience. You, you had, if I understand it right, you had sort of citizenship in two departments at the same time in a way. And tell us a little about how your mentor prepared you for dealing with, you know, multiple disciplines at the same time and how she, she herself navigated that kind of career? Yeah, well, my mentor, she was not that much older than me. She was about 10 years older than me. And I was actually her first graduate student. We had a little bit more of a friend mentor relationship. So we were very close. And I think it was difficult. She would talk pretty frankly about how difficult it was sometimes to sort of navigate multiple departments. And plus there was this big interdisciplinary unit, but she was very well liked by, she was a very popular professor. And so I think she had a lot less trouble than most just by being very, you know, just such a pleasant and fun person to be around. And uh, she was very popular amongst the graduate students as well. But there was a large group of graduate students, the grad students really, they really bonded. It was a a strong interdisciplinary group. And so I had colleagues and still to this day who are, you know, all over the world in different disciplines. And that was a big strength of having such large departments as well. That's a real advantage to having um, kind of a big cohort made a big difference. So, and there were a lot of great, there were just great faculty. Was your dissertation committee a mix of psychologists and Yes, actually, it was mostly psychologists because my dissertation was on humans. Ah, well, that's interesting. So why did you choose the human side? A project fell in my lap, which there was a study ongoing of high-risk, low-birth weight infants. And and they wanted someone who was, I guess, interested in doing home observations. The literature at that time said that these infants that rarely survived, you know, they're born two pounds and under even, 
And I was interested in how mothers, I had studied mother infant baboons when I did my undergraduate work. And, and I did some human work. My honors thesis at Brown was actually on mother newborn interactions in the hospital. So I went around the hospital and people let me in and I would collect data. This was really interesting. They did, and I was ready to like take all the ways all the psychologists had studied mother infant interactions and then take all the ways that primatologists had studied mother infant interactions and kind of blend them into data collection. And I used a little computer that we had programmed it and I went around to homes and from the sort of baboon experience, I mean, the humans, you have to talk to them about how to, why you want them to ignore you. And I went around to uh, 120 homes in Southeastern Michigan, got to know Michigan really well. (laughs) You know, looking back on this story that you've told us, it occurs to me that you plunged into this field immediately in a research environment. You were doing observations along with faculty mentors, but it's an interesting way to get introduced to a field that you plunge right in to the research act that is a field. Is that how you think about it also? Well, yeah, I did. I actually, I did TA as an undergrad and we had some teaching assistant responsibilities, but yeah, it was all about research. And I was fortunate to get fellowships to go to University of Michigan. I applied for uh, lots of fellowships and got a number. So I was that was how I learned to apply for, you know, that you need money and grant proposals. So I started very early in that. I wish I'd known as an undergrad how to do that. So I strongly encourage my undergrads to, do, to apply for funding because just to get used to it. So I applied for funding and yeah, jumped right into the research and was very dedicated. And I trained uh, undergrads to help me for all the home visits because we did multiple home visits and they were really great. That was all running very smoothly, that project. I had full-term kind of match comparison group with the high-risk, low birth weight, uh, and that seemed to be going really well. And then my advisor, Barb Smuts, decided to try out this dolphin project in Australia. And this was partly because she had done a lot of work in East Africa. And in fact, she was one of the Gombe students who was kidnapped in 1975, Uh, She was doing chimpanzee work then, and that was where she had gotten very sick. So she was the one who was let go by the uh, kidnappers first. She, because of the, just the health risk, you decide not to continue primate work and got interested in this dolphin project and asked me to come and help her because it was mother calf project that she wanted to start. So So what year are you now in your uh, graduate work? Yeah, so this was uh, 1988. And in fact, it was because, so I was my third, my third year. But I had the, the project was all running and, you know, still some data collection, but there was an assistant who canceled on her and she said, you know, Janet, why don't you come help me? I'll pay your way to Australia and everything. And so I went with her. My students were trained and I went to Australia. Yeah. So that was a, a was big revelation. Beginning. Yeah. One property of your work that, you know, we mentioned at the beginning was that it's pretty highly collaborative. You, you work in groups and sometimes the groups are students, sometimes they're colleagues from different parts of it. What, what's attractive to you about that as opposed to more solitary scholarship? I could never do the work I do without being collaborative. And there's many reasons why collaborations are important. One is, you know, you can't be an expert in everything, obviously. And 
when you're studying the lives of animals, essentially you're studying, you know, their, their social lives, their ecology, in their genetics, their development, you know, reproduction, all of these things. And to track them for many years, you need people with expertise in these other areas. So the key is to find the right collaborators and good collaborators. And that was, you know, one of the harder lessons I learned over time, because, you know, when you're young, you think you're going to get on with everybody and everyone's going to be, you know, you're going to be one big happy family and share everything and it's all going to work out beautifully. And, you know, people get competitive. They're in different places in their careers. Some people expect others to do the grunt work and they just kind of put their names on it at the end. There's, there's all kinds of difficulties that you have to work out with people. And, you know, for a long time, you think I can just plow through this. And if I just kind of keep my head down and work hard, it's going to turn out okay. But that's not exactly true. That's not really true. You, you do have to, unless you have really good collaborators, then you have to worry about it. It's having those good collaborators. I work a lot with a molecular ecologist who do the genetics work together. You know, so we do now biopsy the dolphins, just like basically taking a tiny piece of skin. Otherwise we don't touch them. You know, the genetics work, but just for a range of things, I work a lot with Lisa Singh, of course, a computer scientist at Georgetown, and that's to do a lot of the computational work. I work a lot with Shweta Bansal. We're interested in disease, you know, epidemiology and how the trade-offs of social living. And uh, because we have such a valuable detailed data set, I can attract collaborators. So if I approach someone and say, hey, you want to work with me on something? It's like, oh, you've got the Shark Bay data, you know, <laughs> they're all excited about it. It's not hard for me to find good collaborators now, but when you start out, it's tough. Have your methods, uh, not in, in data collection, I'm sure they've changed, but also in your analytic work, are you using different techniques now than you used at the beginning of your career? And maybe it's a reflection of how the field has changed too. So what are you doing now that you didn't do when you first started out? Well, there's lots of things. I mean, obviously the, the computational, you know, we're using artificial intelligence, we're using, you know, computational like network. If you look at network dynamics, you need to be more, sort of more computational. We do a lot more sort of modeling with the data and working with large data sets, at least for an animal. You know, it's not the traditional data analysis where you're running multiple linear regressions and things like that anymore. It's more complex. You can uh, look at many more things together, I suppose. And then also, you know, we have the sample sizes to make bigger comparisons than we- In the longitudinal before. nature. Yeah, the longitudinal data. Can you tell us what it was like getting your work published early on and when did it become easier and how has the, you know, set of journals changed and so on? Just sort of reflections on getting your work known by others. Well, in the beginning, I benefited from being very stubborn kind of pig-headed about it. So my first paper was actually published in Child Development, which is, you know, the top journal in developmental psychology, which was interested in. And my advisors in child development then were just like, you'll never get this published. Why are you submitting it to animal behavior? And they told me not to. And I was, yes, I will. I'm going to get it published. <laughs> it was a methodological paper, actually. And um, and it was a strong critique of methods that were being used in child psychology. And they thought they're never going to take it. 
you know, because I came from the sort of animal behavior perspective. In fact, it came back and they rejected it, but they didn't give me a good explanation. And so I wrote back and said, with this long argument about why this paper was important, and it was accepted with no changes except for like a font change on one of the figures. Just because if somebody tells me no, then that would make me more determined. It was just sheer stubbornness. I mean, the same thing when I wanted to go study in primates in East Africa, and I was told by the faculty at Brown, no, you can't do that. You'll never get that opportunity. And then, so some stubbornness can pay off. And maybe I was a little bit obnoxious back then. I don't know, but I persevered. And I remember even the, the faculty who were advising me, they just kind of shrugged, they went, okay, well, just go ahead, do whatever you want after that. (laughs) They basically left me alone. They were so happy to get a publication in child development. When we teach undergraduates at universities throughout the country, it it is uh, not common. It's getting a little more common, but not common generally that they see the passion that we have in our own research careers. What would you say to them if any of them are listening now? What keeps you going? You've focused on this area for many years, yet you're continually fascinated by things that you don't know. So what what drives you to keep doing what you're doing on the research side? I think there are two fundamental things. Uh, One is like basically everything we find find out is new, you know, because of the difficulties of studying marine mammals what we publish is like a completely new thing. It's very rewarding to, I'm not competing with people who are all trying to do exactly the same kind of thing or find some little nuance or some new angle or some little piece of it. We have, and we have a lot more of that we can do. The data set's still like underutilized. It's just, we have so much that can be done with it. That's really rewarding to really contribute to the body of knowledge about an animal. And many people are very fascinated with dolphins, of course. People love them. They always want to talk about them. They want to find out about them. They want to know the answers to the questions that they have. And we can answer some of those questions. There are a lot of questions we can't answer but yet. but And, and that continues to drive it. Sort of The big question is, why do they have such giant brains? And second only to humans, three times the size of a chimpanzee, you know. They are a mind in the waters. And so what does that mean? So that's kind of a big driving factor. And then, you know, frankly, the work is tiring, but it's a lot of fun. You know, we know them as individuals. So it's like you're following this whole society. And again, it's back to this privilege that, you know, you know something about their lives and, you know, all the kids they've had and who's the father of so-and-so. And it is a running soap opera. And it's a pretty dynamic soap opera. It's a pretty intense one. I mean, that's, and that definitely keeps us motivated and excited about it. I can see why. You are not only a world famous researcher, but you're a faculty member at Georgetown. You're teaching students all the time and you have a lot of service duties. I know that personally. One of the things that those uh, folks outside of academia don't understand is that's a big juggling act, doing teaching seriously, caring about it, doing good cutting edge research, and then serving your profession or, or, the, or the institution in various ways. So what tidbits of wisdom do you have on, on how you juggle those things? How have you managed to juggle three things at once? 
Well, in terms of trying to juggle it, I think to me, it's always important to only take on tasks where you're going to have some impact and actually do something. So sitting on committees where there aren't clear action items or it's not going to have an impact, I have great difficulty sort of staying on those committees or remaining involved. I really want things to be better and there's got to be some metrics of improvement and and that can be difficult because sometimes I'll believe in an initiative, but it like takes a while for it to really get things going. And so if it's something I really believe in, like if it's related to the environment or climate change, then I'll stay in and do what, whatever it takes to make things work. But committee work for committee work's sake has a like, little interest to me. <laughs> Picking and choosing, because I don't mind doing the work. Uh, you know, service is work, but it has to be work it's going to have some impact. And certainly like teaching has a big impact, you know, obviously on students, it can shift their career and not necessarily that they all go into animal behavior or something, but that they decide they're really interested in the environment or they want to change that. So I value that a lot in time with students. And, you know, I spend a lot of time with students, even though I'm getting on in years now, but I live with them in Australia and also, you know, when we're out in the field. And so I think that's kept me, you know, in that 18 to 25 year old mindset for a long time. I realized things, they haven't changed that much, you know, I mean, yeah, things have changed technologically or how they keep up with, with each other on social media and stuff like that. I feel very comfortable around students because I spend a lot of, you know, a lot of time with them. Uh, both in Australia and then on the Potomac Chesapeake project. Do you have any clever tips on how you've been able to integrate research and education at the same time? You've, you've mentioned involving students in your own research, but what about in, in classroom activities or in class design? The way I've integrated research and teaching, obviously students are working with me and doing research projects for their senior theses, and many of them are publishing with me, and many of them are working with graduate students as well. But in the classroom, in uh, I teach a course, Extremes in a Blue World on the Biology of Marine Mammals, and there we give them data from our project for them to analyze and work with, and they've you know, read about these animals, essentially, and then I'm giving them, here's like actual data from a long-term project. They work with that, both using kind of spatial data, doing GIS type stuff, or other behavioral data. You know, I take them to those experiences, certainly in the field through various films or sometimes guest speakers and uh, so on. So they do get sense of that. And, you know, a lot of the students that get involved, sometimes that take those classes, get involved in the lab and so on. Maybe a good way to end it is for us to learn about what the coolest thing is you're doing right now. What's on the research front or education front? What really excites you right now? New stuff. The Australia project, it's not exciting in a happy way, but it's interesting. They, there was an extreme marine heat wave and actually the most extreme on record in Western Australia, and it caused a seagrass die-off. This has given us the opportunity to look at how animals that you can study longitudinally, how they respond to extreme climate events. So we're finding out quite a bit about that. And we're able to document that in ways that really no one else has been able to. 
And then, you know, in the Potomac Chesapeake project, that's been really exciting because there've been so many animals. We've documented over 1400 different individuals who come back, you know, year after year. And that project's been exciting, just trying to figure out where they go. There is a catalog that's called the Mid-Atlantic Bottlenose Dolphin Catalog that tracks animals like up and down the coast, 31 different contributors from New York to Florida. And so we're matching up, finding out where these animals go by photographing their dorsal fins and trying to figure out their lives. And then we've also named them after political figures and leaders. And that keeps us entertained. Like we see AOC all the time, kind of cruising around. Uh, actually think she's a young male in the, in the Potomac, but because we don't name, we don't know their sexes, but so we might've given them the wrong names. Barbara Bush has had three kids. We're not sure what to do because Melania Trump just had a second baby and we don't know what to name it yet. But we also named them after, you know, suffragists and abolitionists. And so we see Harriet Tubman all the time and, you know, many other sort of famous leaders. Yeah. So that, that also makes it entertaining for us because we don't know much about their real lives so far. And they're all like swimming and mixing around together. So this is the very definition of science is fun, it seems to me. And Janet, man, this was delightful. It was mm-hmm. an honor to enjoy this conversation with you. And I know we all wish you the best on your future research because it's so important for, Thanks. for the world. Thank you for being with us. Sure. My pleasure. <laughs>